0: Sequence start. Space Nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5,
1: 4, 3, 2, one. Space Nuts. That's
0: the Nuts report. It feels good. Hi there, and thanks for joining us on the Space Nuts podcast. My name's Andrew Dunkley, your host, and joining me, uh, as always, Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large from the department of da 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 da. It's a pretty long <laughs>
1: title. That's what we'll call it from now on. G'day, Fred. You could call me the AAL. Uh, AAL. Um, a- a- yeah, when I was when I was astronomer in charge, I was AIC. Uh, the only trouble is AAL actually has another significant meaning in Australian astronomy because it doesn't only stand for astronomer at large; it also stands for As- Astronomy Australia Limited. So, uh, just throw that idea out. That's a rubbish idea. I'll just really? be a stop. Yeah. I was
0: once given the title URRS, but anyway. Um, <laughs> Some people will understand that.
1: Yeah, you've got lovely friends, haven't you? I've got a lot
0: of good friends, yes. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, yeah. Now, today we're going to talk about some very exciting things. It looks like black holes are still in people's minds, so we're going to be talking about um, a, a couple of questions that have come in from people about infinite density. Uh, de- density. I keep getting it mixed up with destiny. I don't know why might have been a Back to the Future movie that confused me on that front, Uh, uh, and issues uh, photographing a black hole, why were they issues at all? And uh, another question about space travel and uh, near-light speed travel. Uh, We're also going to uh, look at um, the cause of a gravitational wave that was detected recently. This is exciting because they think they've pinpointed uh, an actual cause, and we're going to start off today, Fred, by talking about uh, this rather exciting mission that's one step closer to happening, a mission to Jupiter's ice moon Europa. And that's what we'll start with this, mo- uh, well, this afternoon, this morning, tonight, this evening,
1: <laughs> yesterday. <laughs> Whenever. Whenever it is, yeah. It's, yeah. So, look, a terrific story. Very good news from uh, NASA that they, um, the powers that be within NASA have uh, given the go-ahead um, for a mission called Europa Clipper, which is is one of the uh, missions that's been uh, postulated, or, or sorry, proposed is a better word for um, exploring the moons of the outer planets. There are a number that are kind of on the on the table at the moment. Some further advanced than others, but Europa Clipper is pretty well advanced. And it, as you can tell, its target, its main target, is Jupiter's moon Europa, which is one of these um, ocean moons, uh, ice ocean moons. Uh, we believe it has uh, a covering of ice and we don't know whether it's thin ice or thick ice. So that will be one of the things that Europa Clipper would find out um, and an ocean underneath it and a, and a rocky core. Uh, so Europa Clipper, I think they are talking about having it ready for launch in 2023, which is, um, you know, not fantastic long, if, if they long. can do that. That's right, uh, but apparently that's um, that's the 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 baseline commitment as it's called supports a launch readiness date by twenty twenty five. It's all being done at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena. That's where the spacecraft will be built. So they've got the go ahead. It's um, it's it's got a you know a, 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 the next step in the. Uh, in uh, approval from nasa which i think is a pretty solid one so i think we you and i back in 2025 will be talking a lot about europa clipper maybe
0: yeah um, that's the, and it, and what will be the basis of the of the mission are they just going there to have a
1: look because that's It, it always... is a bit like that uh, but it's a very good look um so it's not going to land on europa okay. it is a proposal to go into orbit around Europe, actually to go into orbit around Jupiter. Uh, And, of course, orbiting Jupiter is always hazardous because of the the intense um, you know the intense uh, uh, radiation belts that jupiter has it 's got a magnetic field thousands of times bigger than the earth 's and has these high energy radiation belts around it that threaten to melt the the innards of spacecraft uh, so like uh, the Juno mission, which is currently in orbit around Jupiter, this uh, Europa clipper will go into a very uh, elongated orbit um, which will Uh, give it 45 flybys of Europa, Uh, and their altitudes will vary from 2,700 kilometres to 25 kilometres, so it will really be skimming over the surface. It will. And it's got this huge science package with all the kind of, you know, the gubbins that you would expect to find on board something like that, including a mass spectrometer, uh, which... Basically measures, you know, the the weights of atoms, as you might guess Uh, it. um, That is interesting because Europa, like Saturn's moon Enceladus, is thought to have, although it hasn't really been properly confirmed, but thought to have uh, ice uh, fountains coming out of it. Um, which are water that's squirting up through its its icy shell and instantly freezing. It's snap frozen. Mm. But if you fly through it, as Cassini did with Enceladus, then you can sample what the atomic makeup is. And so the mass spectrometer will help with that. Uh, And also um, it's got this ground-penetrating radar, and that's going to be crucial in characterising Europa's crust um, and revealing how much of you know the potential water within is oceanic as is, as is expected uh, or whether it is just pockets of water as we find in antarctica and indeed around the south pole of mars will they be able to tell what kind of water it is um uh, to, to some extent they will um, it, it it may require a bit of um, you know inference from other measurements but if you've got samples of ice crystals uh, then you can do exactly that you can you know you can uh, basically tell tell whether it's saline water or fresh water because you can see the you can measure the salt content of it so like um Saturn's moon Enceladus uh, which is actually quite rich in minerals and and it's the silicates in that that tells you that this water was once in contact with with rock uh, I think the Europa Clipper will be able to sample exactly those things too, assuming these plumes are real, because they're they're, they're not well observed. There are there is evidence. I've seen images that that, that seem to show these plumes coming from Europa. Uh, Assuming they're real, when they fly through, um, hopefully we will be able to tell what kind of water it is exactly.
0: Mm. And will they be able to tell how much water there is underneath the surface?
1: Yes, they will, because that will very much be revealed by the um, the ground penetrating radar in exactly the way that um, uh, one of the spacecraft in orbit around Mars. I think it was the. I think it was might even have been Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. I'm not sure. Detected <clears throat> this lake of. Liquid water underneath the ice cap of the southern ice cap of Mars. About a year ago, you and I spoke about it Mm. at length. Um, And they can tell exactly how much there is there because you you can see the boundary with this sort of radar, you can see the boundary between an ice surface and a water surface, and that's crucial to doing this.
0: So, this mission won't actually be looking for life, but it will be looking for. Uh, the potential for life to perhaps exist on a
1: on a moon like this exactly so as the as the blurb um, on the NASA website says uh, it will help scientists investigate the chemical makeup of europa 's potentially habitable environment while minimizing the need to drill through layers of ice so that what they 're going to try and do is as much as they can from orbit um, and then you know if there's like if they find lipids and amino acids and all this sort of thing in the uh, in the plumes of ice coming coming from Europa, then clearly the next step will be a lander uh, that starts digging holes in the ice. Yes, uh, I mean, you know, before you do that, the first thing you need to know is how thick the ice is. Yes, uh, if, I mean, it, if it's a couple of miles thick, we've got problems. Well, actually a couple of miles is better than what they're expecting oh is that right more like 25 or 30 miles or kilometers that's right choose your units um yeah so yes a a thinnish layer of ice would be pretty pretty um good to to, you know to cope with you could probably do that i mean by thin i mean less than a kilometer probably yes but the likelihood is it's it's probably more, but I guess we'll, we'll have to wait and see. Um, I mean, the thing is, and, um, Europa's covered in all these cracks that are, that are brownish in colour. Yes. That's thought to be the effect of sunlight on brine, on, basically on salt water. So you've already got a hint there that uh, it's probably a salty w- ocean underneath the surface. Mm.
0: Well, salt's probably not that uncommon in the universe, really. Um, that's right, it's in, not. It's one of the, one of the base materials isn't it uh of course this doesn't guarantee they're actually going to go this is just another step forward in the approval process it, it, that's it's that's a correct very longitudinal process and they have to get over a lot of hurdles before they actually hit the launch button so uh, hopefully they're um, they're going to get there and uh it's a, it's a long trip to yes well, it is that's Jupiter. the other thing so they've got yeah, to time that, it right they've got to get yeah. in the right place at the right time
1: Exactly, all all of the above. That's right. So uh, at least what it you know at least uh, it's not a knockback. That's the good news. <laughs> yes,
0: indeed. All right. Well, we'll keep an eye on this story because I'm sure there'll be more to report in the not too distant future about uh, a mission to Europa. You're listening to Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. Now let's take a little break and find out more about our sponsor. Back to the show. And I feel fine. Space nuts. Now Fred, we've uh, discussed uh, gravitational waves before and uh, a few of those have been detected in recent times. Uh, the problem with them is what is the cause? And now in a recently detected gravitational wave, they think they've got a candidate
1: that's that's right this is so this is you know it's a an, an ongoing story uh, what i like about this story is it's got a nice australian component because there is um there's a a, a basically a, a a collaboration here in australia which is called osgrav uh, which is about gravitational waves. It's a you know, kind of fairly predictable name, but um, it includes people from the Australian Universe, National University and I think University of Western Australia, other places which are strong in gravitational wave astronomy. So um, it's very nice that it has this Australian component. So what's the story? Well, uh, the large, uh, sorry, the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory, otherwise known as LIGO, um, has been operating since uh, 2015 in its uh, sort of current state. It's actually technically called Advanced LIGO because I think it took 15 years of, de- of development to get to this stage. But that, but they have uh, now not quite regularly, but. at Fairly infrequent intervals, sorry, fairly moderately, moderate intervals, let me put it that way. Mm -hmm. They've been detecting gravitational wave events. And for the last couple of years, they've had an additional string to their bow. Remember, there are two of these detectors at opposite corners of the United States, um, which um, you need because... Uh, Otherwise, you've got no idea where these things come from, or even if they're real, you need to see the gravitational wave pass one and then the other with the right kind of time interval in between. Um, But they've been joined in the last few years by something called uh, uh, Virgo, which, uh, in fact, I think it's called Advanced Virgo, like Advanced LIGO. Virgo is an Italian gravitational wave detector, and of course, having three detectors Widely spread over the surface of the Earth means you can pinpoint things much more accurately in in terms of the direction in which these gravitational waves come in from. Triangulating the signal. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. Um, What's interesting about this one, though, is that the signal seems to be from a black hole absorbing a neutron star. Ah, um we actually had a false alarm on this which is embarrassing because um my book has just gone to the printer saying yes we've observed a neutron star being absorbed by a black hole um and uh, that, that i think disappeared because it turned out to be um terrestrial noise it was sort of you know so i don't know whether it was a train going underneath a microwave detector, oven probably or yeah something like that that's the usual story isn't it a microwave oven um that was earlier this year and and that um has now gone away but it looks as though this one uh, might actually be the real thing a black hole and a neutron star uh, we've had two black holes merging uh that's That's probably been the commonest source of uh, gravitational waves. There have been several of those. We've had a couple of neutron stars merging as well, and that actually comes with celestial fireworks that you can observe with other types of telescope, like neutrino telescopes, visible light telescopes, radio telescopes, X-ray telescopes, all of the above. Um, And that was a big story actually late last year, if I remember rightly. But um, until now, we haven't had a confirmed... Um, uh, observation of a neutron star being absorbed by a black hole, and we still don't have. It's still a bit speculative, but from the masses that are inferred by the signal, and you remember what you get is this weird gravitational chirp. Uh, It's uh, the frequency of a sound wave going, whoop, Mm -hmm. Uh, as the two things come together. Um, And it's that that gives you all the details of what it is that that are colliding. The suspicion is it's two objects, one of which is three solar masses and the other is five solar masses. I think I'm right in saying that. I uh, should check those numbers. But anyway, uh, that is the current uh, expectation of what is colliding. So something three solar masses would have to be a neutron star because it's too lightweight uh, to be a black hole, and so uh, that is what's making this interesting. What's what's perhaps um, a bit surprising—it's uh, is that you might expect there to be once again uh, radiation coming from this. So, you know, not just gravitational radiation, but. Uh, Noise in the X-ray spectrum or neutro- uh, neutrinos, uh, particles, th- things of that sort, but it, but it hasn't been observed. And um, the one of the Australian astronomers, uh, um, I've forgotten her first name. That's embarrassing, isn't it? Susan Susan Scott. Uh, she's at um, ANU, Australian National University. Uh, she says that. If she said, well, what she says is we've looked for light signatures of the event, but no one has found any up to this point. That indicates that if it is a black hole and a neutron star, then very likely the neutron star has been swallowed whole by the black hole. Uh, uh, He said. And she says this could happen if the objects were of different masses. So it's the smaller object gets sucked in more quickly and and is swallowed whole. So, you know, it's not strung out into into this um, mess of material uh, that does emit um, uh, signals in the electromagnetic uh, wave bands. Uh, If it gets sucked in whole, maybe you don't get any signal at all except for the gravitational wave signal. It's extraordinary. How, how,
0: How sudden would the... Impact B. I mean, you know, neutron stars. We've talked about them, and they're pretty volatile individuals, and and quite dense. Um, quite quite dense. is just a slight
1: understatement
0: there. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, so, so I imagine it would be quite a cataclysmic collision.
1: Yeah, that's right. Um, in fact, so when, when you've got two black holes. Um, what you get at the end of it is a more massive black hole. Mm. Uh, And um, you're talking there, though, about, you know, infinitely small, infinitesimally small points merging. Uh, Their event horizon, their two event horizons merge as well. And you get something called a ring down where the event horizon itself vibrates. Um, I think with a neutron star, you wouldn 't have the event horizon, but it would be possible for the the neutron star just basically to disappear over the black hole 's event horizon you don 't see anything uh, but neutron stars themselves, as you and i've talked about many times, are active in the sense that they 've got highly intense magnetic fields on their surfaces, and they beam this radiation out, which we see as as pulsars so they 're not they 're not particularly quiet things nope. uh, I mean this thing could be a pulsar whose lighthouse beam of radiation is missing the Earth, if, if I can put it that way. Because the only reason we see pulsars is when you've got a neutron star whose uh, beams of radiation from their poles actually sweeps across the Earth. And that, of course, is a particular uh, circumstance. Maybe this one wasn't like that, and it's just got chewed up, uh, and we haven't no, uh, we haven't seen its its demise, mm. other than in the gravitational waves. I think there'll be more about this story, Andrew, and um, I hope you and I can bring it to our uh, our space nuts listener or listeners,
0: our fraternity. Our, fraternity.
1: <laughs>
0: yes. Uh, well, it, um, you know, the, the the more we can gather in terms of data uh, on gravitational waves, the the more we will learn, and who knows what sort of problems it could solve down the track.
1: So. Exactly. It's always my comment that you never know what you're what you're setting in store for the future from all this knowledge. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you just
0: gather the knowledge. One day it might just go. You know, a penny will drop with someone else. Maybe. Yeah. A generation down the track, who knows? Yep. It's yep. it's all useful, and even if it's not, it's good to be able to gather it and well it, one day it, use it some some. That's other right.
1: Way. It, it's, um, you know, all these things are constantly testing Einstein's theory of relativity. Mm. And that's um, very important because we know there's something wrong with it, but we haven't found anything wrong with it yet. Even though it's been tested within an inch of its life, it still holds up.
0: Yeah, fascinating. All right. Stuff. You're listening to the Space Nuts podcast with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson.
1: OK, we checked all
0: four systems and in with a go. Space Nuts. Now, Fred, I do want to shout out once again to our patrons uh, that number 39 now. Uh, thank you so much for supporting the Space Nuts podcast. We so appreciate it. And if you're interested in becoming a patron, you can do so at patreon.com slash space nuts. That's patreon.com slash space Space nuts, and uh, thank you to everybody who has joined the Space Nuts podcast group. They number in their hundreds now. Fred, we've only had the page going for a bit over a week, and uh, already we've, so we've cracked the century. And, Great stuff. Um, have over a hundred people that are all space nuts fans who are all now talking to each other and uh, answering each other's questions and. Uh, having a fair bit of fun. So it's, I'm so pleased we were able to put um, uh, those people together. And uh, who knows, friends, friendships may be forged. Yeah, um, that's great. Or, or collaborations great. that might solve some of the mysteries of the universe. Who knows? Uh, that would be a lovely legacy, I think. Uh, let's, um, uh, and, and, of course, if you would like to be a, uh, a member of the Space Nuts podcast group, um, just find it. It's on Facebook, uh, Space Nuts podcast group in your search engine. And, um, yes, just ask to join, and we will click the approve button. Everybody seems to be like-minded and enjoying themselves, so uh, that's what it's all about. Now... Fred, some questions, if you will. Um, Hello again, fellow nutters. I have a question I'm hoping you can help me um, understanding. An old chestnut black holes. If a black hole is an infinite dense point, why does it have a diameter? I don't understand why astronomers refer to black holes by their size in terms of diameter when it's meant to be a point of infinite uh, density. Are they mistakenly referring to the event horizon? Mario from Melbourne. Hello, Mario. Thanks for the question. And
1: the answer is yes.
0: Thank you,
1: Mario. Thanks for the question. Um, Mario then goes on to, uh, you know, uh, everything he says is absolutely right, that um, uh, if you've got a a point of infinite density, it's got zero dimensions, so you can't refer to its diameter. Uh, What you can refer to is its mass because the the mass is uh, is variable, uh, but the fact that it has no volume means that when you... You know, when you look at the mass per unit volume, you've got something of infinite density, which is how density is defined. So Mario is absolutely right. Uh, what does vary, though, with the mass is the event horizon, the diameter of the event horizon, which you and I have spoken about before. Um, it's uh, uh, it's it, it, uh, a quantity that I, I suppose is important because... If we are observing a black hole, as we did with the Event Horizon Telescope, then that's what you see. Uh, so a big one's going to be easier to observe than a smaller one. And that's why a supermassive black hole uh, in the center of a galaxy called M87 was chosen for the the first target for that Event Horizon Telescope. But no, Mario, you're quite right. Um, it is... That uh, astronomers, when if they talk about the diameter of a black hole, and that probably includes me as well, uh, are actually really referring to the event horizon because that's the that's the parameter. And I love the way Mario signs off by saying thanks in advance to Dave and Fred, uh, although he does say AKA Andrew. <laughs> yes, that one's going to stick for a while. <laughs> Sorry
0: to say. Thank you, Mario. (laughs) Moving on. Uh, Hi, Andrew and Fred. It's Andrew from Newcastle with another question, if I may. Just watched a doco on the quest to capture the first photograph of a black hole, uh, rather accurately the shadow of a black hole, as Fred so eloquently explained, and I didn't understand one thing, amongst others, of course. With the multiple observatories around the world and the use of atomic clocks to synchronise the data acquisition... Why were they uh, on tender hooks? Uh, regarding the weather at all the sites with uh, bad weather at just one, putting the whole venture in peril. I understand from the show and other sources that they were collecting radio wavelength data and I thought that this was unaffected by the weather and atmospheric conditions. I thought that uh, was the intrinsic beauty of radio astronomy, day and night, rain and shine. Hope you can enlighten me, wait for it, but over the radio. (laughs) Dear, oh, dear. Uh, Andrew Broadhurst. Thank you, Andrew. That's uh, a great question. Andrew, leave the jokes to me, man.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I always leave them to you. So. <laughs> um, Sometimes look- they're good. Oh, gosh. When was the last? Oh, never mind. <laughs> uh, Andrew's on the money there. He's, you know, I thought radio waves were unaffected by the weather. And the answer is that radio waves come in different flavours. Mm. Uh, and so sh- uh, what you might call low-frequency radio waves um, – which is still relatively, you know, they're, they're way outside the medium wave band of radio and things of that sort. But low frequency in radio astronomy, um, I guess, goes up to a couple of gigahertz or something like that. Um, those are largely unaffected by weather. That's absolutely right. So that's why it can be pouring down at parks at the radio dish there, and the astronomers are still happily observing through that. But the Event Horizon Telescope used higher frequencies. Uh, in fact, one of the Telescopes that was incorporated into it was AlMA, the Atacama Large Millimeter Array, which has featured very uh, very widely on space knots that is a high frequency uh, radio array in fact, they have receivers that go up to uh, more than nine hundred gigahertz, so that 's like you know nearly a thousand times higher frequencies than what we 've just been talking about, and at those sorts of frequencies. Uh, The weather plays a very important role because water vapor actually dramatically absorbs the microwave signals. And that's what. Experience that watching satellite television. If there is a storm
0: and it rains heavily, the wavelengths of the raindrops can absorb the
1: signals from the satellite and you get nothing. That's interesting. I've never tried to watch satellite television, so that's a good thing to know. Mm. Um, It's one of the pitfalls. Yes, yes. In fact, I seldom watch television at all, so that's probably why. Um, but, but the bottom line is, um, you know, it's why facilities like ALMA and some of the other radio telescopes that were used uh, to, com- to, to be th- become the Event Horizon Telescope, it's why they're all at high altitudes. ALMA is at almost 5,000 metres above sea level. Um, that's, you know, fifteen sixteen thousand 16,000 feet, and at that height... There is very little water vapour in the atmosphere. Uh, But you can still get weather. And that's why they were indeed on tenterhooks about the weather, because they don't want any of these. Uh, If you lose one of those arrays, and I think there were eight of them that came together all around one hemisphere of the Earth uh, to, to to make up the Event Horizon Telescope. If you lose one of them, you lose a significant amount of your ability to reconstruct the image that they're seeing. Uh, and so that was why they were worried that the, the weather on just one of them might be uh, moist uh, or damper than they can cope with, and that would have screwed up the whole thing. But as it happened, it wasn't. It didn't happen, and it was great. They got global good weather. They did, global good weather at these high-altitude sites, that's right. Did the
0: job. All right. There you are, Andrew. Uh, Thank you for your question. And we've got one more we'll squeeze in from John Spooth. I hope I pronounced that correctly. John, thanks for your question. Hi, I have a question that's been bugging me for some time, and I need an expert to help me out. I think we should stop there, Fred. There's Um, nobody here, is there? Who's that? Hang on, I'll go and see if I can find somebody. Maybe the cat could probably answer this one too. Now, um, imagine a spaceship travelling close to the speed of light, disregarding that we don't have that sort of propulsion just yet. Would the increase in its relativistic mass at some point turn the spaceship into a black hole? And if so, would that spell the end of the ship and its crew or would they be able to slow down to reverse the process? What a great question. It
1: is a fantastic question. Do you want to have a go at it? Uh, the answer is no. <laughs> it is. You got right. Yeah, you were right on the money there. See, see there is an expert. It's called <laughs> Andrew Dunkley or Dave. I a 50-50 chance. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it's a great question. And it, it, the answer is a little bit um, prosaic, I think. And that is that in the, in the rest frame of the spacecraft, you know, so if you're on the spacecraft and you're going at almost the speed of light, your mass doesn't change. It's only in the rest frame of a, a stationary observer. And by that, I mean somebody watching you go past. Somebody watches you hurl past and your mass gets very much higher to the observer. Mm. But to the, the inhabitants of the spacecraft or the spacecraft itself, your mass doesn't change. It's, you're still normal. You're still normal yeah so and it, the same story is true with time dilation you know you're, you you know that when you go nearer the speed of light your clocks tick slower uh, that's a seen by a stationary observer uh, and so it's the same sort of thing if you're on the spacecraft, your clock is ticking at the same rate as it ever was, but to a stationary observer, your clocks tick slower and this, and t- this has been proven with atomic clocks hasn't it? it it has and indeed with mass as well you can do this you can see this sort of phenomenon with um, uh, with uh, cosmic rays, which travel very close to the speed of light. You can see their mass change. So um, that's from the point of view of somebody who's, you know, not moving at the same speed. If you're moving at the same speed, you don't see any change at all. Mm, fascinating. Pretty boring, I, at I mean, the more, the more we
0: <laughs> discuss black holes and the number of questions we get about them, people are really quite captivated by the strangeness of them, I suppose. Yeah. They, they throw up all these things that seem so alien to what we consider normal, uh, and that's because we've only experienced uh, what's happening on our planet at any, any given time. So to, to try and comprehend uh, enough gravity to warp time, to slow things down to the observer and, and increase
1: mass, just it's really whack. <laughs> <laughs> Sound on the brain that's true and you know but uh look john's question there is is a great question because it's it's not intuitively obvious what is happening uh in a situation like something traveling close to the speed of light and in and So he's right to ask, would that mass actually turn it into a black hole? Uh, But the answer is no because of the reasons that I've outlined. But it's great, great thinking.
0: It is indeed. Thank you, John. Thanks for the question. Do appreciate it. Keep your questions coming in. We're trying to um, run them down, but they... It's, it's it's an ever-growing mass, really.
1: It's all right. Look, as you said earlier, Andrew, um, all the space nutters are going to get together and sort them out for themselves. Well, and we'll that, be re- that's we'll what be I would encourage.
0: Actually, if uh, if yeah. people want to ask questions of the group uh, and and discuss it, they, yeah, by all means. Um, that that's part of the reason we set up the Space Nuts podcast group. So, um, it's a good opportunity to not only meet like-minded people who enjoy these these topics but also to maybe come up with your own ideas on on what might be and you know I'll keep an eye on it and if something pops in there that we think is worthy of further discussion we will certainly investigate that. Uh, Thanks to everyone who um, who who sent in their questions uh, and uh, contributed and joined the Space Nuts podcast group and Patreon and everything else we really appreciate it Uh, but most of all we appreciate you Fred thank you so much. (laughs) It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me, as always. And we will catch you next week. Professor Fred Watson, uh, astronomer at large, and from me, Andrew Dunkley, thank you again, and we'll catch you next time on another edition of Space Nuts.
1: Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast.
0: Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor.
1: This has been another quality podcast production from tights.com.